I've always been a little bit puzzled, really, by John the Baptist. What was his role? Why, why was he important? His ministry confirms that Jesus really is the Lord who was to come. Had there been no herald, no Elijah-like character, then we would know for certain that the Lord had not come. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, I'm glad you brought this point up because uh, I've kind of had some questions about John the Baptist myself. And why, why was he so necessary? Why was that Elijah-like character needed? I mean, couldn't Jesus himself have said, hey, I am the Messiah and here are some miracles to prove that? Well, I guess he could have, and and maybe we would have been satisfied with that ourselves. But interestingly, the Old Testament sets out the expectation that when the Lord's Savior, the Messiah, comes as promised, there will come ahead of him a herald who will announce his arrival. And John the Baptist, he fits the profile of that herald perfectly. And so he is an added confirmation that Jesus is indeed the Messiah sent from God. So was his only role really to just simply say Jesus is the Messiah, or was there more to John's role than just that? Yeah, that's a good question, Steve. I mean, certainly he was introducing, announcing Jesus and confirming his identity, but he was also calling the people to respond rightly to Jesus, to be ready for him to come. And the core of his response was a core really to repent, to turn from sin. The Lord Savior, the Lord himself is coming, and the the one thing we've all got to do, the people of old and, and us today as well, the thing we've got to do is turn from sin because the Lord himself is coming. Well, we're going to continue to look at this in today's program. If you can, uh, grab a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 3, as we begin a message called An Unsettling Arrival. Here is Jonathan. We as a family live in a village just south of Ottawa. It's normally a pretty quiet and sleepy place, but Thursday brought unusual excitement. A motorcade of official cars with tinted windows swept into town with the national media in tow. As the cars pulled up outside a local cafe, it was clear that someone important had arrived. And then, sure enough, out stepped the Prime Minister and his entourage for a brief visit and a meet and greet over coffee. A grand entrance, an important arrival that Excitement was almost more than the village could take. Facebook was positively buzzing with the news. We've been seeing over recent weeks how the Old Testament is a great book of promise pointing forward to a great arrival, the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our particular focus this morning is on the announcement of Jesus' coming and the work of John the Baptist in preparing the way for him. John has a brief but a very vital role in the ministry of Jesus and the story of Jesus. The spotlight is on John but for a short time, and then he largely disappears from view. But if John's ministry has two central functions in these verses, we might summarize them like this. John's ministry acted as both a witness to the Lord's arrival and a warning concerning that arrival. Let's consider first John's role as a witness, and here we focus on verses 1 to 6. 
There was in the Old Testament a clear strand of promise that the Lord himself would come to rescue his people and to judge his enemies. And attached to that promise was the clear expectation that before the Lord arrives, there would be a herald, there would be a prophet, an announcer who would tell everyone to get ready for his arrival. And Matthew wants us to know that John the Baptist was indeed the promised herald of the Lord. Verse 3, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Those words from Isaiah chapter 40 speak of the day when the Lord will come to bring comfort and salvation to his people. And they tell us that the Lord's herald will announce his coming so that we know that the Lord is soon to arrive. When the Lord's herald shows up in the wilderness, then we know that the Lord is on his way. We're told elsewhere in the Old Testament that this prophetic figure, this announcer of the Lord's arrival, would come in the tradition of Elijah, the great prophet of old, the famous Old Testament prophet. So, for instance, in the book of Malachi, we read, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And then later on, see, I send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So before the Lord arrives, a prophet like Elijah in the tradition of Elijah, presumably not Elijah himself, he's been dead for some time, a prophet in Elijah's tradition will come. Now, Elijah was a kind of distinctive character. He couldn't really be missed when he was around. We're told in the book of Two Kings that he was a man with a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And of course, Matthew's description of John the Baptist practically quotes those words from Two Kings. Verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. It's normal, of course, for major events in world history to be marked by clear signs. This week saw the death of the British journalist Claire Hollingworth at the age of 105. Hollingworth was taken on by the Daily Telegraph newspaper as a correspondent based in Poland in August of 1939. A week into her new job, she was driving near the German-Polish border and noticed that some large screens had been put up in a valley. And as the wind blew, one of the screens was kind of blown back momentarily, and it revealed to her sight thousands of German troops, tanks, and artillery positioned to invade Poland. The next day, the Telegraph ran the front page story telling the world that Germany was poised for war. One week into her journalism career with the Telegraph, Claire had landed the biggest scoop of the 20th century, the imminent outbreak of the Second World War. The presence of troops and tanks and artillery, well, they were a sign, clear as day, that war was coming and the world would never be the same again. The arrival of John the Baptist on the scene in the Judean wilderness, well, that was a sign of a very different kind of event. 
but it was a marker of a seismic shift in world history. The Old Testament had promised that a herald, a distinctive herald in the wilderness, like Elijah, would appear. And when that herald appears, we know that the Lord is coming. I've always been a little bit puzzled, really, by John the Baptist. What was his role? Why, why was he important? Well, the basic answer from our passage on one level is simply this. His ministry confirms that Jesus really is the Lord who was to come. Had there been no herald, no Elijah-like character, then we would know for certain that the Lord had not come. Part of Matthew's agenda in this opening section of his book is to demonstrate to us that Jesus truly is the Savior and King promised in the Old Testament. He knows his readers are going to be interested in seeing proof, and they need to be convinced that Jesus really is the promised one. And we've seen over the last couple of chapters in Matthew that he really has worked hard to show us that key promises and key expectations of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. He's almost been working through a list of key promises and expectations and ticking them off one by one by one as a sort of identifying list of the Lord's Savior. Tick, tick, tick. Yes, Jesus must be the real deal. And the presence of a forerunner, a prophet like Herod, well, that is one more big crucial tick in the process of proving that Jesus really is who Matthew says he is. Every week we have folk with us who are investigating the claims of Jesus Christ, but not yet committed as followers of his. And if that's you this morning, if that's where you are, let me encourage you to take John the Baptist and his role as one more piece of crucial evidence to consider. And let me urge you to consider carefully where the evidence points and what it adds up to concerning the identity of Jesus. Some friends were telling us just recently that they had participated in an escape room game. I don't know if you've come across these things before. I've never done one, but they seem to be growing very popular. Basically, I think the idea is that you and some friends um, decide to go and voluntarily get locked in a room somewhere. The room is filled with clues about how to escape, and you've got 45 minutes to work through the evidence, apply logic, find the key, and hopefully make your way out. I can't quite decide if that sounds like a lot of fun or my worst nightmare, <laughs> but people evidently pay good money to do this, and our friends said they had a good time. But I only mention that because there's a little sense in which the Bible is a great room full of evidence pointing to the Lord Jesus. And each of us needs to do our own work to assemble the evidence and apply logic to see where it leads us and to see what it adds up to. It's all there for each of us to make of it what we will. So often people imagine that Christianity is just one big blind leap of faith. But here in Matthew chapter 3, we see one more instance where we are being invited to evaluate evidence and draw a logical conclusion. This is he, verse 3, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah centuries and centuries ago. Here's the evidence, says Matthew. 
God has said in his word that he would do something. He himself would come to rescue his people, and he would come to judge. And when he comes, he will send a particular type of herald to announce his arrival. Were this just one isolated incident, we might write it off as a kind of a fluke. But as Matthew so amply demonstrates, this is part of a repeated pattern in the way God works through history. This is, if you like, one more clue, one more piece of evidence pointing to the identity of Jesus and confirming the truth of God's Word. So John the Baptist acts as a vital witness concerning the coming of the Lord. That's a key aspect of his role. But there's more to it than that. His role is not simply to inform us that Jesus really is the Lord, important though that is. The other aspect of John's role is that he acts as a warning, a warning to prepare appropriately for the Lord's arrival. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called An Unsettling Arrival. And I hope you will stay with us because we're going to continue to look at why it's so significant. John the Baptist came not only as a witness, but also as a warning. Well, if you have just joined us, we're in the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 3 and looking at uh, why it is so significant that John acted as this herald to announce the Lord's arrival. Now, if you miss any broadcast in our series called Promise Fulfilled, you can always come and catch up online. Just come to EncounterTheTruth.org, and there you can stream the program or download an MP3. Again, that's EncounterTheTruth.org. All right, let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. So John the Baptist acts as a vital witness concerning the coming of the Lord. That's a key aspect of his role, but there's more to it than that. His role is not simply to inform us that Jesus really is the Lord, important though that is. The other aspect of John's role is that he acts as a warning, a warning to prepare appropriately for the Lord's arrival. Just after Christmas, we went down to Toronto to visit family for a few days. And you might remember that over the Christmas weekend, we had some pretty serious weather warnings. Freezing rain was due to move in on uh, Sunday night, and Boxing Day was set to be a dreadful day weather-wise. Friends who sort of knew our travel plans kept politely asking us if we were thinking of maybe delaying the drive until the weather improved. But we thought we could probably just stick to our plan and go carefully, and it would probably be okay. These weather alerts, they so often turn to be incorrect anyway. Well, I began to have some misgivings about our little plan as the freezing rain fell solidly on me as I packed up the car on Boxing Day morning. I had some further concerns as we sort of slid our way down our driveway on the way out. I realized that the warnings would have been worth listening to as we got about halfway down the 401 to discover that it was not only extremely busy, but actually closed. <laughs> a few exits ahead of us, and backed up for hours and hours on end. I had some serious pangs of regret as we embarked on a kind of journey of discovery in rural southern Ontario, <laughs> through back roads in the middle of nowhere, along with everyone else who would have been traveling on the 401. And I felt just a little foolish when it became clear that our four-and-a-half-hour journey would actually take more like eight-and-a-half hours. We ignore warnings at our peril. And John the Baptist was sent centrally to deliver a message of warning to the people of Judea 
and Jerusalem. He warned people that they needed to get ready for the coming of the Lord. His opening call in verse 2 is to repent, which means simply to turn from rebellion against the Lord and instead to submit to Him and to His good rule. The idea of repentance is really to do a 180-degree turn. I was heading away from God in rebellion, and now I am going to head toward Him in obedience and submission. Repent, John says, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The Lord Himself is coming to exercise His rule. It's worth saying that the language of the kingdom of God being near in verse 2 is quite intentional. There is a sense of the kingdom coming now, but not being here yet fully. There is a, a dynamic, if you like, of now and not yet. In his first coming, Jesus would usher in the kingdom as he called people to follow him as the true king. But one day he will return to bring in the full reality of his kingdom, and that is a day yet to come. But John wants us to be in no doubt that the Lord, the King, has indeed come. And many wonderfully responded to John's call. People went out to him, verse 5, from the whole region. They confessed their sins, their wrongdoing, their rebellion against the Lord, and they were baptized as a sign of their repentance. But at the very same time, many people were less interested in heeding John's warning. Some came out to sort of see the commotion, to see what was happening, but didn't recognize their own need, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, two of the major parties within Judaism at the time, when he saw them coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We don't know all the background here. We don't know what experience John has had of these two groups of people, but he evidently knows enough about them to suspect that their presence with him at the river that day was not a sign of true repentance, a true turning to the Lord, a true turning away from sin, a true submission to the king's rule. Certainly, Jesus will have some very strong words for some of these religious leaders later on in the gospel. Just listen to what he says uh, to them in chapter 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, he says, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to all people as righteous, as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Certainly, it's not at all clear that these Pharisees and Sadducees have come to be baptized for repentance that day by John. They just came, verse 7, to the place where he was baptizing. They were probably just wanting to know what all the commotion was about and who it was that had drawn such a crowd and created such a stir. But in any case, John's challenge to them is very striking. He doesn't say to them that there's no hope for them. He doesn't write them off entirely, even though he calls them a brood of vipers. He simply says this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And that is a fascinating charge to give them. The language of repentance is 
very familiar to us in Christian circles. The central call of the gospel is to repent and believe. So repentance is a key part of our Christian vocabulary. But I fear that we often underestimate what is involved in true repentance. Very often, I think we can reduce the idea of repentance to the act of saying sorry, and perhaps saying it with a degree of sincerity. Saying sorry and really meaning it, at least for a time. We imagine that all will be well with us and the Lord because we have felt genuinely sorry for a moment, or for a day, or for even a week, and we prayed a very heartfelt prayer. But John insists that true repentance is more than this. It's not just a flush of embarrassment or a pang of regret. True repentance, verse 8, will produce fruit that is in keeping with that repentance. Repentance leads to change. Repentance bears fruit. So if I repent of a particular pattern of thought and behavior, that repentance will necessarily show itself through real change, not through sinless perfection, but through real change in that area. If there is no change, never any change, no development, we must assume there has been no repentance. Leading up to Christmas, I was beginning to kind of feel the lack of exercise in my life. I had done a bit of jogging in the nicer weather in our neighborhood and really enjoyed that. But once it got a little bit icy and cold, I used the bad weather as a bit of an excuse to kind of cut back on the running. But by mid-December or so, I decided that things really needed to change. I was missing the running. Something had to happen. And when I saw an opportunity before Christmas to get hold of a treadmill nice and cheaply, I jumped at the opportunity, thinking, in the winter months here in Ottawa, that's just going to make all the difference. And, you know, it felt really good to do that. I thought, I've, I've been wrong in my attitude to fitness here, but it's all going to change now. There is a revolution going on in the uh, Griffiths household. No looking back. Nothing's ever going to be the same again. Initially, the treadmill sat in the back of the car for a couple of days. You know, the boxes, those things are heavy. Um, and I just needed to work up some energy to haul it into the house. But eventually, I, you know, I did manage to unload it, and I got it down to the basement. It then remained, you know, unpacked for a few days. I knew the assembly, that was going to take some time, and I was a bit busy. I would get to it later. But, you know, I was still feeling pretty good about things at that point. The revolution, it was in process. It's going to take time, but it's happening. No more Mr. Lazy. No, sir. Uh-uh. There is now a treadmill in our house. Eventually, I took the step of taking the treadmill out of the box and began the slow process of assembly. Now, I'm going to cut a long story short here. We've owned the treadmill for a number of weeks now, but at the present time, I can count the number of times I've gone jogging on the treadmill on one hand. Indeed, I think on one finger. <laughs> so far, it has been all talk, no action. And you might well question quite legitimately whether I have changed in my attitude at all. I might claim to have changed, but there is precious little fruit thus far. John insists, verse 8, that true repentance must bear fruit. True repentance will be matched by evidence of a changed life.
Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, the first part of a message called An Unsettling Arrival, and we're going to continue this message next time, so I do hope you'll join us then. Well, Encounter the Truth is listener-supported. It's what it sounds like. We depend on your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station, but as you give a gift of any amount, we want to say thank you by sending you a book written by one of Jonathan's friends, Pastor Josh Moody. And in this book, he tackles 10 common questions about the church, including the question, why go to church at all? Also, what's the point of baptism and communion, and why are there so many different kinds of churches? Now, we'd love to send you this book, How Church Can Change Your Life, as our way of saying thanks for your financial support. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's one 833 998-7884 or again, EncounterTheTruth.org Well, thanks for listening today. Thanks also to our producer, Mark Bretta. For Jonathan, I'm Steve Hiller, and I do hope you'll join us next time.